Well, I'm going to ask you to turn in God's Word to the book of Amos this morning, to the book of Amos. And as I was driving here, um, our message is one of doom and gloom this morning. And I said, Lord, it's a beautiful day. The sun's out. And about 10 minutes ago, it started pouring rain. I was like, thank you, Lord. I need some doom. I need some gloom. Some thunder and lightning, Lord, would really make it uh, even better. But we'll, uh, we'll stick with the rain. But it is uh, good to be in the house of the Lord, even when uh, the text before us is a difficult one. Uh, we have been studying this uh, often neglected Old Testament book. There's not a lot of a sermon series out of this book, and yet as we have gone through it, I have been so encouraged, even at times when the passages before us are difficult. I'm encouraged for a couple different reasons. Number one, we see throughout this book the holiness and justice of God on display, and we need to see that as a broken and flawed uh, group of people. Number two, we see God's great regard for the disenfranchised. Thank you, Lord. Ask and you shall receive. That's good, Lord. That's good. His regard for the disenfranchised and the vulnerable. And, and, And we need that here in America because... We so often live in comfortability. We live in, in many ways, luxury as we've endured. And, and you don't learn this until the power goes out. We were in Hinkley the other night, and the power went out. You know, 100-degree index. And I thought the Lord of the Flies had entered the Badal home. The chaos that ensued. When is the power going to come back on? And even I, as I was laying in bed, said to Amanda, how did they do it back in the hard days? How'd they do it, you know? And, and Amanda looked and said, that may have been why there were so many wars back then. I don't know. But we need to recognize amidst our luxury and our comfortable lives that there are vulnerable, broken, and needy people around us. And the book of Amos reminds us that not only that that is a reality in our world, but that God deeply cares for those. And he is concerned and is watching how you and I, amidst our comfortable lives, amidst our luxury, are responding to those needs and those vulnerabilities. But we also see that God is serious about his people's sin. That though uh, he loves us and, and cares for us, he is a God who demands perfection and holiness. But amidst all of this doom and gloom, thunder and lightning, showers and storms, in the book of Amos, we see God's immense mercy that he shows his children. You see, he's going to bring the pain. He's going to bring great torment and great great struggle to his people. But he doesn't do it just out of hand without any warning. In fact, he gives Amos this great warning. And with each warning, with each vision, with each harsh word that Amos shares is a grace and a mercy that God says, change before it's too late. Repent while there's still time. And what we're going to learn is is that they push off the words of the prophet. And because of that, God gives Amos three visions of the doom and gloom that are coming the people of Israel's way. So now Amos has been bringing this message, and he has spoken candidly and and clearly to his people. He hasn't pulled any punches. 
And what we're going to see is that God has a final response to the sin of the people of God. Now, what was their sin in the days of Amos? Three sins that I want you to write down somewhere in your outline. Number one, material prosperity. And material prosperity creates a security that makes us think that what we have is enough to take care of us and, and lead us and guide us and in many ways keep us secure in, the, in our hour of need. They had material prosperity. Second, they had fallen to moral perversity. Moral perversity, that is, instead of being a light to the world, they began to live as the other nations did, following their gods and, and practices as a result. And that resulted in the third sin that they had, and that was religious hypocrisy. You see, they talked a good game. They talked about how they loved the Lord. They talked about their sacrifices and the amount of time that they vested in their worship and service to God. But they were worshiping other gods at the same time. In fact, side by side, as they were worshiping God, they were worshiping a multiplicity of other gods. And God says, you're hypocrites. Without becoming too melodramatic, can I say that those three sins are alive and well in American Christianity today? That we too have material prosperity. We too at times without maybe even recognizing and knowing it have become a part of culture in ways that the holiness of God makes us step back and say, oh, how far we have fallen. And can we be honest that at times our religious experiences, our church involvement many times comes from hypocritical places. You see, for all of this, the book of Amos speaks volumes to us. Now what I'm going to do this morning is do something I've never done before. In fact, we are going to look at the largest portion of Scripture that in my 16 years of preaching here that I've ever done, we are going to look at Amos 5, 6, 7, 8, and half of verse, or chapter 9, and then we're going to finish up the last part of chapter 9 next week. And here's the reason why. There's a lot there. Three visions... But all of these visions and all of these words point to one thing. The day of the Lord. God says that the end for Israel is coming. And you better change before it's too late because that end is not going to be a pretty picture. And we're going to see not only the importance of looking back to that past day of the Lord. But we also, as believers, need to look forward to a future day of the Lord that will take place. And I'll explain a little bit of that as I go. And so this morning, let's look, and I'm just going to look at a portion of Scripture. I'm going to read it, and then we'll ask for God's blessing on our time. I'm going to look at Amos chapter 5, and I'm going to look at verses 1 through 7, and then I'm going to go from verse 14 through verse 17. So let's look at the text together. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen, no more to rise as the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land, with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out with a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. But do not seek Bethel, that was where a temple of false worship was taking place, and do not enter into Gilgal, same thing, or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. 
Instead of pursuing other gods, he says in verse 6, seek the Lord, thank you Lord, seek the Lord and live. Lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth, seek good and not evil, verse 14 says, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. As you have said, he hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas, they shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all the vineyards there will be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, in this passage we see great doom and great gloom for your people. And we recognize and we worship you, that you are the Lord of hosts. The God who gets to do what He wants to do, when He wants to do it, how He wants to do it. And we do not stand in question. We do not stand in accusation. But we worship and praise You that You are a God of justice and holiness. But in this passage, Lord, we also recognize You are a God of great grace. You plead to us, seek You and live. Seek good and not evil. And you say, might there be a remnant? Might there be one like Joseph who honors you while his brothers turn their own way? Father God, I pray today as we look deep into your face of justice and even the face of your wrath, that we might seek you and live. That we might seek to do good and not evil. That we might be in our day the great remnant that honors you while all the world turns to its own ways. Teach us from this great passage of Scripture that we may honor you in all that is said and done this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen and amen. Our culture is infatuated with the idea of the end of the world. Just within the confines of our movies, we know that almost every year a summer blockbuster comes out that shows us that the end of the world is coming. They dedicate themselves to this theme, whether it's sinister aliens in movies like uh, uh, War of the Worlds way back in the 50s, or maybe even more recently Independence Day, aliens coming to destroy the earth. Maybe it's some meteor or cosmic phenomenon that takes place, like in the movies Deep Impact and Armageddon. Uh, still others look for meteorolog meteorological catastrophes, like 2012 or the day after tomorrow. We are infatuated with this idea of the end of the world, and with each of those movies, we are victorious. As if the world and the galaxies and maybe even the supreme being God has thrown everything at humanity. And we have found ourselves to be victorious. And we get this bravado that says, whatever the world wants to throw at us, even at the end of the world, bring it on, we're ready for it. Even Christianity, 
Some of the most best-selling books of Christianity in the last 60 or 70 years have been books written about the end of the world. We are infatuated with how this thing all wraps up. And many of us, and of course the world, seems to resonate with uh, the group REM who said it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. Well, God wants you to know that the end of the world is coming, and it's probably not altogether good for us to feel fine about it for different reasons. You see, back in Amos' day, the people in Israel were looking forward to the day of the Lord. In fact, look at Amos chapter 5, verse 18 with me for a moment. It says the following, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? So what God says is, why are you so infatuated? Why are you so excited for the day of the Lord? Well... For Israelites, the day of the Lord was when God had come down from his celestial seat and throne in heaven and dealt decisively with his enemies. And so what they were hoping for, what they were dreaming up, what they were uh, believing was going to come was a day nearby in the future, in Amos' day, that God would come down and he would strike down the enemies of Israel. And so they looked forward to it. They were excited about it. They anticipated the great pain that their God was going to bring. But here is the great struggle in Amos 5, 6, 7, and 8. God says, I am bringing the day of the Lord, but it's not coming against your enemies. It's coming against you. It is because you have been sinful, because you've lived like your enemies. I am going to bring the pain, and that pain is coming to your house, not to your enemy's house. And so as a result of that, he tells them, woe to you. Woe to you who desire for the day of the Lord. Now, why would you not want that? Well, let's understand a couple things. First of all, the day of the Lord is a time of great destruction. It's a time of great destruction. The Bible talks about the day of the Lord over 80 different times in Scripture. And it talks about it in in many ways seemingly as a singular event. The day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And what you need to understand is, and you will be confused in your Bible study, if you assume all of these days of the Lord being one and the same. They're not. And so many times, let's look first of all at two definitions about the day of the Lord. First of all, the Old Testament definition of the day of the Lord. The Old Testament definition of the day of the Lord is numerous days in the past where God brought destruction to his enemies and deliverance to his people. And so when the Old Testament speaks about days of the Lord, these are different events and times, numerous, where God would address a great enemy of Israel, and deliver his people. So let's let's explain this, okay? Because these happen more than once. In Genesis, we see a day of the Lord with regards to the flood. God says, he looks down at humanity, he sees that every uh, inclination of the heart was to do evil, and he says, I am saddened that I even created man, and now I'm going to destroy them. And he destroys them 
with a flood. Now, he doesn't just come and all of a sudden open up the heavens <coughs> and, and bring rain, flooding rain to them. For 120 years, he gives opportunity for them to repent through the work of Noah, who's building an ark and preaching righteousness to the people. We'll get that in a moment. But in Genesis, we see a day of the Lord with regards to the flood. In Exodus, we see of the day of the Lord coming on the nation of Egypt. They have for hundreds of years enslaved the people of God, and, they ha- and the people of God have murmured and, and, and have cried out to God to heal them and to protect them and to uh, give them freedom. And it says that God heard their cries, and he brings up Moses. And Moses goes to Pharaoh, and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, are you kidding me? I'm not doing that. And as a result of that, Moses says, listen, there's going to be plagues brought. And each of these plagues are a part of the day of the Lord. And each plague over and over again comes. And Pharaoh says, nope, not, not hard enough, not bad enough, until the final one is the taking of the firstborn son of all of Egypt. And so the Israelites know the day of the Lord was a good thing because it emancipated them as slaves. Third, we see the day of the Lord in, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I missed one, in Genesis, Sodom and Gomorrah is another one. Sodom and Gomorrah, where upon a city, God brings the day of his judgment upon a city for their sin. Uh, We also see, uh, let's see here, in Joshua, the day of the Lord coming to the city of Jericho. The city of Jericho, where the men and women of Israel march around the city, opportunity is given, and they don't repent, and the walls come down. The day of the Lord is seen in 2 Kings, when 185,000 Assyrian army men are standing before uh, Jerusalem. King Hezekiah prays before the Lord and asks the Lord to do something, and God does, and the angel of the Lord comes and slays 185,000 in one night, and the Assyrians are destroyed. We see the day of the Lord over and over and over again. And Amos is now saying, what you heard about in your history books is now about to take place, except it's not against your enemies, it's against you. Now, we've seen a couple days of the Lord, if you will, on the people of God. One of them was when the Israelites had left Egypt, they murmured all the time. In fact, after leaving Egypt, when they didn't have the kind of food they wanted and the kind of luxury they wanted, they said, hey, Moses, send us back to Egypt. It was better that we were there than we're out here. And they began to fight against Moses' leadership and God's uh, leadership in their lives. And, and God brings snakes. And snakes come into the camp and they kill many, many people. And the day of the Lord comes. We see the days of the Lord with regards to the sons of Korah, God's judgment upon people who pronounce to be the followers of God. And so here they are. They know their history and they're saying, this day is coming and we're looking forward to it because this is when God revenges and avenges all of the things that we've experienced. Now, Let's stop there for a moment and get a New Testament definition. In the New Testament, the Bible talks in the New Testament about the day of the Lord. But it's not talking about a numerous course of events, but one singular day in the future where Christ will inaugurate his kingdom by descending to earth in triumph and glory. And so the New Testament talks about this day, this day that's coming in the future that will bring an end to this age 
and will in essence inaugurate eternity. And it is here that Jesus will come back, not riding on a donkey, but riding on a white stallion with a sword, where he will destroy his enemies once and for all. And he will establish his rule and reign over all of his creation in a way that you and I will see it as clear as day. And when the New Testament talks about this, it talks about this in a way of something that is to come. Now, we need to understand and recognize that these two days of the Lord, the one that Amos is talking about and the one that like Peter talks about in his writings, are two very different days. One was in the past. One is going to be heading towards us in the future. Well, how does the Bible describe these days? Now, we understand that there's different types of days, one that we can understand from the past and one from the future. How does the Bible describe this destruction? Well, let's understand a couple things. First of all, look at how Amos describes it. In Amos 5.18, it says it's a day of darkness and not light. It's a day that people will want to flee, but when they flee from one problem, another problem will come. The next thing that we see is not only is that a time of, uh, of darkness, but in verse 20, it's a time of doom and gloom. In chapter 6, verse 3, it's called the day of disaster. In chapter 7, verse 10, it is like a devouring horde of locusts. In chapter 8, verse 3, the only response will be shouts of wailing, and what you will see all around is death. There will be a time of just utter death. Now, Amos says this time of destruction is coming upon the people. Now, Isaiah puts it this way. Write this passage down. Isaiah 13, verses 9 and 10. This is how he describes it. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. From the stars of heaven and their consolation will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. That is a dark and gloomy and despairing day, Isaiah says. The prophet Joel calls it the day of utter doom and gloom. But before we forget, the New Testament speaks of a coming day as these are prequels to what that day is going to look like. Peter says this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and all its works will be burned up. It is a terrible day that we have before us. Now right away we hear this and we say, how can a good and loving God do things like this. In fact, we want to cut these passages out of Scripture. There's a good reason why the book of Amos isn't taught in churches is because people don't like this kind of God. And many will say, and I've heard it said to me, I don't like the Old Testament God. The New Testament God is far more palatable. Well, I want you to know and recognize that uh, the New Testament has plenty to speak about the doom and gloom that God is going to bring. We just choose not to read it. But we need to understand that God's wrath and judgment and His indignation against sin needs to be held in perfect balance, even though it's out of balance today, because all we hear about is that God is love, God is love, God is love. And God is a God of love, but that must be held in balance with His other attributes of justice, wrath, His righteousness, His anger. 
And we need to recognize this morning that a clear biblical view of God is that God is an angry God with regards to our sin. God is a God of justice who will not allow sin to pass idly by Him. And God will deal with, and all of it harshly, the evil that we have done as His creation. In fact, in the passage we are told in uh, Amos chapter 5, verse 24, Amos utters the words of God. He says, but let justice roll like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God's looking forward to the opportunity for His attributes of justice and righteousness to be revealed to all the world in one last moment of time. Now, Where's the love and where's the mercy? Let's notice that not only is the day of the Lord a day of great destruction, but it's an also a time of great intercession. Great intercession. Now let's go back to the previous days of the Lord in the Old Testament where God brought His judgment. And I want you to notice in each scenario, God calls someone, first of all, to intercede on the behalf of the people, and then he doesn't just leave them there, but he creates an opportunity for them to be saved. Now, so let's go back to it. First of all, we see that with regards to intercession, God uses people. He uses people to intercede. So let's go back to the book of Genesis, and let's start with the flood. Yes, the flood was going to come. Yes, the flood was going to wipe out a great many people. But it didn't need to be that way because we see that Noah found favor in the eyes of God. So there was an option. There was an alternative to being destroyed. And Noah stood as an intercessor for all the people to see that they did not have to die amidst the flood, but that they could find life by giving their life to God and to listen to the threats of God and change their actions and change their ways as Noah did. For 120 years, with every hit of the hammer and every day of work that was done was an intercession to the people saying, come to this boat and be saved. Come to God and not lose your life and not be destroyed. Noah was an intercessor. Let's move to Genesis, farther in the book of Genesis, to Sodom and Gomorrah. God calls out Sodom. It's a wicked city. And God calls it out and, and Abraham comes and he sees Sodom and he has an interest in Sodom because his, his cousin Lot um, is uh, um, in Sodom and as a result of that he's concerned about where his, uh, not cousin, his nephew lives and as a result of that uh, he goes to God and he says, God, I know that you hate the sin of Sodom. I know you're going to destroy the city of Sodom, but if I can find 50 men, will you spare it? And he goes and he seeks out 50 and God says, hey, you know what? If you find 50, I'll, I'll take care of it. And he can't find 50. Then it's 10. And he can't find 10. And so, so he intercedes again and again, going and telling people, hey, Sodom is going to be destroyed. And if you don't change your ways, if you don't turn to God, then it's going to become a time where it'll be too late. And we know the story. Only one family comes out, Lot's family. And as a result of that, the city of Sodom is destroyed, but it doesn't get destroyed until there's opportunity for an intercessor to come. Move to the book of Exodus for a moment. In the book of Exodus, remember, the plagues have taken place. The nine plagues have hit Egypt. And each time, the people of Egypt, personified in Pharaoh, 
rebel against God. And it's saying, that's all you've got, God? And so then God says to uh, Moses, because of the hardness of Pharaoh's hearts, I'm going to come and the spirit of the um, angel of the Lord is going to come over Egypt and it's going to kill in its wake every firstborn son of all of Egypt. Now, that's justice. That's righteousness. And God has every right to do it. But God says it doesn't have to be that way. So he goes and uses Moses as an intercessor. And Moses each and every time says, hey, if you let my people go, no more plagues. No more judgment. And then when this plague comes, he goes to the people and it is announced through all of Egypt that if you put blood on your doorpost, the Lord will pass over his judgment. But they don't listen. But we know the Israelite children, uh, they listen and they are saved. And so we recognize that with each of these times of destruction, God creates an intercessor. We see that uh, over and over again throughout Scripture. Now, here's the thing. God sends people, then he creates Passover. Passover is the great uh, intercession of God with regards to his destruction. Thirdly, we see God brings prophets. God brings prophets. And so this brings us to Amos. Amos comes, and Amos says there is wrath and indignation of God coming in a day of destruction. You don't want to see that. You don't want to experience that. And so what is Amos doing? Amos says, seek God and live. Seek to do good and not evil. He's interceding. In fact, in chapter 7, turn to chapter 7 for a moment. In chapter 7, starting in verse 2, it says, when uh, the first of the visions comes... It's out of a horde of locusts. And this is what Amos says, Oh, Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. And it says, The Lord relented concerning this. He says, It shall not be. And this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great, and, the great deep and was eating up the land. But Amos said, Oh, Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He's so small. And the Lord relented concerning this. He said, this also shall not be, said the Lord of hosts. Recognize and understand that not only was the prophet's job to communicate the doom and gloom that was coming to the people, but it was also an opportunity for Amos to intercede and say, God, don't do this. Don't do this thing. And we see that over and over again in the life of Moses. Moses has these conversations with God. God, don't destroy your people. And God relents and, and gives an opportunity. We see this in the day of the Lord in the book of Jonah, where God says through a prophet, listen, I'm going to destroy Nineveh, the city of Nineveh, the great city. And Jonah's job is to go and tell the people that Nineveh is going to be destroyed. And he preaches a very short sermon, and it says, Nineveh repents, and God relents. You see, God brings prophets to be intercessors. But there's one more intercessor that we need to recognize, and it is not as we look to the past, but as we look to the future of God's plan. You see, after Amos... What's going to take place in Amos chapter 8, we are told that there's going to be a famine. 
But Amos says it's not a famine of crops, but a famine of the Word of God. God is going to become silent. We know that to be true, that after the last prophet that comes and proclaims, that's uh, personified in the book of Malachi, that for 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, the Old and New Testament, God would not speak. There would be no utterances from God to the people of God. There was a famine of hearing the Word of God. But even then in Malachi, we are told the following. In Malachi, we are told, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so they need to know and recognize, though there's silence, God has still another word to share that will come in the days to come. But who is going to come and intercede before that great and terrible day? Well, Hebrews chapter 1 gives us a passage that helps us. It says that God used angels and prophets back in the day, but now he uses Jesus Christ, his one and only son. It is Christ now who's interceding for us. Instead of Amos, a prophet, instead of Abraham, a patriarch, it is now Jesus Christ who is interceding to the Father for us right now. And listen to what that means. Right now, God could destroy us at this moment. He could have destroyed us long ago. But it is Jesus who again and again and again is articulating to his Father, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And it's because of the work of Christ on the cross, because of the work of the Holy Spirit in the world, that God is not eager to bring His dis- destruction, but He is patient, as Second uh, uh, Peter chapter 3 tells us, He is patient to give opportunities for people to repent. And though we think that this patience is, is God's uh, forgetting about us or, or falling asleep at the wheel, God is saying, I am giving opportunity before that great and terrible day that I will come and destroy the nations. I am giving a long opportunity with Christ who is interceding on your behalf for you to repent before it's too late. And so we have this great intercessor, the Prince of Peace, You see, he's called the Prince of Peace because it is Jesus alone who brings peace between man and God once and for all. And if you have peace with God, then God will not come and pour out his wrath and indignation on you because you have been saved by the blood of his Son, Jesus Christ. That is why Jesus is far superior, the book of Hebrews says, over angels or prophets or anyone else because he alone is the one through his intercession that can bring peace back to man with regards to God. That is, by the way, what we celebrate and why we sing joy to the world at Christmas. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. The reason why Christmas is a time of celebration and singing and joy is because we have the Prince of Peace who has come and who has now allowed, listen to me very carefully, because of Jesus, the future day of the Lord will pass over you and I who have been found in Jesus Christ. Amen? And so as a result of that, we do not need to fear doom and gloom. We do not need to fear the dread of God coming upon us. But we can have faith and hope and trust that that day will be a day that while it will be terrible for the world, will be a time of, in many ways, great victory for us. Because of this Prince 
of peace. Now, this day of the Lord is a time of destruction. We know that in the book of Amos. The book of Amos, 40 years from when Amos shares these words, a flood of men come running into Israel, the northern kingdom of the people of God. And this flood of people, this flood of men, are the armies of Babylon. And 40 years after, the day of the Lord comes, and the day of the Lord is not a a time of destruction, because God says He wouldn't do that. It wasn't a time of great pestilence, of of, uh, moth or insects or locusts, because God relented and said that wouldn't happen. And so what did God do to His people? He put them into exile. And so the Babylonians come 40 years after Amos articulates these words and he takes the northern kingdom, that which Amos is talking to, the southern kingdom, Judah, has years of great prosperity. While the northern kingdom finds itself in exile, Judah, who was true and faithful to God, does not experience this wrath. They're brought into the Babylonian captivity and they would be there for years Until Jeremiah would say that 70 years more and God's judgment will be done. That God had plans and purposes for the people of Israel. Plans to prosper them and not to hurt them. But first, that great and terrible day of the Lord needed to take place. So it's a time of destruction. But before we get mad at God and, 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 if you will, shake our fist at Him, we need to see that over and over again, God gives intercession. And even in the future day of the Lord that is to come at this great end of the age, that Jesus is our intercessor, now it's a time of invitation. It's a time of invitation. Before any trouble comes, Amos asks God to relent. And God does. And in uh, Amos chapter 7 through 9, Amos shows a vision, three visions in fact, and it's a last chance opportunity to change the course of God's judgment. But they don't listen. In fact, the majority of them turn and keep doing their thing, but God is calling out His remnant. God's calling out amidst the masses a group of people that He will rescue, a group of people that He will watch over and protect over that day of the Lord. And then the question is, what do we do if we are a part of that? What are we to do as those who are no longer under the judgment of God? Now there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. What are we supposed to do? Well, write these four things down. The first one you're going to add to it, okay? You are being invited because of what God has done. You are being invited to praise God. Write that above the the bullet points I've got. Praising God for saving you from this day. Praising God for saving you from this day. When we understand the day of the Lord and the wrath and the punishment and the destruction that is coming the way for sinners, and we recognize we are one of those sinners, and then we recognize what Jesus has done. He left heaven and came to earth to die for you and I that God's judgment might pass over us. We will sing and pray and proclaim the praises of Him who's called us out of darkness and brought us into His marvelous light in a way we've never praised, prayed, or proclaimed ever before. Because we will now know that God is not the celestial Santa Claus 
who's just warm and fuzzy, but he is an all-consuming fire who will destroy his enemies after intercession upon intercession upon intercession is rebelled against and thrown away. And what God is saying to us is, I've rescued you from that. Praise me. I've rescued you from the destruction that is to come. Do you think that when the voices uh, and the cries in the days of the flood were being heard, while Noah and his family were on the boat, that they didn't praise God? We could be there. That could be us. But you saved us. Your mercy and your grace, you saved us. And for that, we praise you. Now, Philippians 1.6 tells us something so very important. Philippians 1.6, write this down because it's a very famous passage of Scripture, but we don't ever think about it in this context. But Paul's thinking about this when he says, For I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And then he adds this thing, At the day of Jesus Christ. You see, the day of the Lord for the Christian is the finish line, not the time of destruction. Because of Jesus. And so what Jesus is saying is even the great and terrible day of the Lord that the world is going to experience, that thing, that pain, that sorrow, that punishment will never touch the person who has given their life to Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I'm confident of this. I'm sure of this. And so, Christian, we should be praising God because it is the God who has now plucked us as if from the fire. And now we have hope and confidence that that great day of the Lord will not impact us as it does the world. Praise God for saving you from that great day. Number two. Make God your plumb line. What, Tim, are you talking about? Make God your plumb line. In our text, we are told that the final vision that he is given in chapter 7, verse 7, is this of regarding a plumb line. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And Amos said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. That's the king. And what we need to recognize is what God is saying is, People of Israel, you have been comparing yourself with the wrong standard. You see, a plumb line is a rope or a string that has a weight at the bottom of it. Builders still to this day use a plumb line to see the straightness of a wall. They don't want to build a crooked wall. And so a plumb line shows what is true, what is right, what is the standard. And God says, listen, in this day, I am your standard. I am the one that you judge yourself against. But here's what the people of Israel did. They judged themselves against the Amalekites and the, and the Persians and the Babylonians and the Assyrians. They judged themselves amidst all of the nations around them. They said, hey, look, we're not so bad. 
And we do that today, right? We look to our neighbors. We look to the people we work with. We look to the people in our community and we hear their mouth and we listen to what they watch and we, we, we hear at how they live their lives and we say, hey, I'm doing pretty well. The problem is, is you're holding a plumb line against a crooked wall. And maybe you're not as crooked as they are. But all crooked walls, no matter how crooked they will, are crooked before a straight line when it comes to the righteousness of God. And so what we need to recognize is, is because our God is a holy and just and righteous God, we must set Him as the standard. Not our friends, not our neighbors, not anyone else, but God. And so the question is, God, how am I doing with regards to your standards? Now here's the terrible thing. You'll never get it right. On your own. You will never have a straight line on your own because you are sinful and I am sinful. So we need someone to come and straighten our crooked paths. You know, that's what the prophet said Jesus was going to come and do. He was going to straighten out our crookedness. And because of Jesus, now you and I can now begin to pursue the righteousness of God Day in and day out, but it is a choice we have to make. That's the sanctifying work in our lives. We come to know Christ. He makes our ways straight. Now the question is, are we going to live after coming to Christ in that straight way? Are we going to live according to that standard? If we are truly freed from the fear of the great day of the Lord, we must make God our true plumb line. Next, we need to pray. We need to pray for God's mercy and his long-suffering. The day of the Lord was coming. And one of the things that uh, is, is at times a bit disheartening to me is the Christians and the, the churches, if you will, infatuation with the end of the Lord. We want the end of the, the end of the world, I mean, the day of the Lord to come. And we want to have that come, number one, because we want to be avenged. We want to be proven right. All those people who mock us, all the people who, who make fun of us with regards to what we believe about God, on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. We want that to come. But we forget, we forget that on that day will be a day that every one of those people that we've lived lives with, Every one of those people that maybe we had in our families or in our neighborhoods or in our schools or in our workplaces or in our communities, those people will not have a chance anymore. And that is the time where God will usher into eternity and He will throw, the Bible says, He will throw His enemies, sinners who have not repented but have continued to rebel against God into the lake of fire. And on that day, it will be a day of terrible weeping and wailing. It'll be a a day where it's too late. And what we need to pray is that that day doesn't come too quickly. Because the day that it comes, it will be too late. And you and I need to be praying for the people that are close to us and people who are far off from us, that God would continue to be patient so that people might have the opportunity to repent. And so we need to pray, Lord, I know I want heaven to come, but I don't want it to come too quickly because... While it's good news for me, it's bad news for a lot of people. And so, will you wait? Will you wait? Will you be a little more patient? Will you be a little more long-suffering so that people might come to repentance? God desires for all people to come to repentance. And so He gives time. And what seems like a thousand years is but a day to the Lord. 
And we need to be praying to that end. God's judgment would come 40-some years later. I pray, while I want to see heaven sooner rather than later, I pray for not only my generation, but for my children's generation, that God would be patient. Because when he comes for millions, in fact, billions of people, it will be too late. Finally, it means we have to proclaim the truth before it's too late. The gospel is the only answer to alleviate the day of the Lord. It is in the gospel that Jesus came and paid our penalty and bore God's wrath. You see, listen, we didn't get off scot-free. In fact, the day of the Lord came for us, listen very carefully, on Good Friday, on that cross, where God forsook His Son and He poured out all His wrath and indignation upon His Son. And it is as Josh said, as we read in Josh Ledison, it was by the stripes of Jesus Christ that we were healed. And we need to proclaim that truth. Because that is the way that we prepare people for the day of the Lord. We go to people and we say the day of the Lord is coming. Repent. You say, well, that, that, that sounds too much like a street evangelist. Well, maybe there needs to be a little more street evangelist in us that we recognize, as Amos did, the day of the Lord is coming. And so we go to our neighbors, we go to our friends, and we tell them, before it's too late, before the time of destruction comes, will you give your life to Jesus? So let me ask you in this place, Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? I mean, given it, made Him your plumb line, knowing that you without Him will be destroyed on that great and glorious day, or will you turn to Him, seek God, and live? The invitation is there. Before you leave this place, know that on that great day of the Lord, you'll be worshiping God, not being thrown into a lake of fire. God is serious about sin, and He will address it. And don't uh, misunderstand His patience to be something other than His loving, merciful response to give you and I as His creatures an opportunity to see Him and to believe in Him so that the wrath of God can pass over us.